Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors at our Norton campus, and I get the privilege of being uh, hanging out with you guys this weekend and excited about this new series that we're in, talking about the Jesus in between. Because often what people know about Jesus is what they know from Christmas and Easter. His birth in, in a manger, his, his death, burial, and resurrection at Easter. And so we have this picture of holiday Jesus. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, well, you know, what if all we knew about Abraham Lincoln was his birth and his death? I mean, he was born in a, hum in a humble cabin in, in Illinois, and 56 years later is assassinated as president. And those are significant events, but what happened in between? I mean, he had a lot of great things to say. There was a, th a lot of things that happened in his life, a lot of things that happened historically in those 56 years that he went from this humble cabin to president of the United States. It's the same with Jesus. If all we know is his birth and then his death and resurrection, we know some really important things about him. But who was he? Who is this? Who is this man? Who is this? Uh, this uh, what happened between his birth and his resurrection? What was it like to be around him? What kind of person was he? How did he treat people? What were his priorities? What was Jesus really like? And so, over the next few weeks, we want to drop in on Jesus as he's living life, as he's interacting with people and having conversations and, and interacting with the experiences and the circumstances that are happening around him. And so, this morning, if you want, turn to the book of God, the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is the second book in the New Testament, the second section of your Bibles Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Mark chapter 2. This morning, we're dropping in on Jesus on a day that was filled with interruptions. And then Jesus does the unexpected. As I was thinking about this passage and thinking about the interruptions that Jesus faced on this particular day, I, I started thinking about some of the interruptions that, and surprises I've faced as, as a pastor. And one of my first uh, ministries, I was an associate pastor and we, uh, we didn't have a church building, so we would set up in an elementary school gymnasium, and it didn't have air conditioning, and so it would get hot, kind of stifling in this gymnasium, and so we would open the double doors on both sides, try to get a breeze going. Well, on this particular Sunday, it was a beautiful day, it was hot inside, we opened the doors, we set everything up, uh, you know, we, we worshiped together, and, and Pastor Dave, the guy I was working with, he's in the middle of his message, and a German shepherd comes trotting through the door, and across where he's speaking, grabs the bag of donuts that he had bought for that morning crew, and trotted out the next door followed by a very embarrassed owner who is chasing after her dog and yelling after him right in the middle of his sermon. So everything worked out, and we got a good laugh out of that. I, I think about the time I did a funeral, and uh, someone's phone went off, and it wasn't just your normal phone ring. It was a, a duck quacking. <laughs> I think about the time when I was at... Uh, I was a pastor in, in Ellet, and <clears throat> our sound system was picking up a radio station the entire service. And so I was preaching to Whitney Houston. 
I think about the time that at, at Ella, it was an old building, old brick building, and we'd have all the windows open because it didn't have air conditioning. And <clears throat> that would be okay. We'd get a nice breeze until the Akron Air Show. And we were right in the flight path to the airport. And so during the, during the worship and during the message, you, would, you know, 25 helicopters go a couple hundred feet over the building. And, and then you get through that, and then there was the jet, and then there was the bomber, and, and it, was, <laughs> it was a crazy morning. But I don't think anything, any of those things are as crazy as what the distraction that Jesus dealt with in Mark chapter 2. But let's get some context. Mark introduces us to Jesus in chapter 1. Jesus is baptized. Uh, Pastor Dan led us through the passage last week that Jesus is tempted by Satan. Jesus calls his first disciples. He demonstrates his authority through teaching. He demonstrates his authority through healing and and exercising power over the spiritual realm. Jesus' fame is growing. And if his notoriety wasn't, hadn't reached crazy levels already, he heals a man with leprosy, and, and he tells him, now keep it on the down low. Don't, don't tell anybody what just happened. But it's interesting because we read in Mark chapter 1, verse 45, instead he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. So then we come to chapter 2 and we read this. A few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. And so Jesus comes back to home base, which is most likely is one of his disciples Peter's home. Uh, This was where Peter's mother-in-law had just been healed a few weeks earlier. And as soon as the people heard that Jesus was in the house, they came running. They came running. You can almost hear the buzz. What's he going to do next? What's he going to say? Can you see him? Can you get to him? What's he doing in there? You see, Jesus was a magnet to these crowds. And everywhere he went, there was a crush of people. The inside of the home was was packed, standing room only. Imagine just a a mosh pit of people inside the house and outside the door. But we need to understand something here. This is the way it's going to be. Jesus would often, he would would have to get into a boat so he wasn't crowded, uh, so he had some room to preach and as the people pressed in on him. On the shore of the lake. You see, this was the way it was going to be until the crowds turned their backs on him at the cross. And it's interesting because Jesus didn't see the crowds as a measure of ministry success. The majority of these people weren't turning to Jesus in faith. They were simply curious. They wanted to witness more miracles. They they wanted something to talk about. They're they're really spiritually uncommitted. They want the healing. They want what Jesus can give them. They want more comfortable, more interesting lives. But generally, they're not seeking anything spiritual from Jesus. 
In fact, they remain pretty indifferent to his teaching, though they recognize and they appreciate the uniqueness of it. It was different than what they had been hearing. And in fact, we read in verse 27 of chapter 1, the people were also amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. But the fact is, Jesus had a lot of fans. They wore, my, they wore their I love Jesus t-shirts. They followed him around wherever he was. And yet in the end, most ended up walking away. And I think this should cause us to pause a little to ask, what, what's my relationship to Jesus? You see, it's like the guy who goes to the football game with no shirt and, and painted chest and sits in the stand and, and yells crazily, cheers for his team. In his home, he's got the signed jersey hanging on his wall and multiple team logos, but he's never been in the game. He never breaks a sweat. He never takes a hard hit out on the field, but he knows all the players' names. He knows their latest injuries, but he really doesn't know the players. And so he yells and cheers, but nothing's really required of him. There's no sacrifice. Truth is, as excited as he gets, if his team starts to lose... His team starts to lose a lot, he loses his enthusiasm. He doesn't watch as intently. In fact, sometimes he doesn't care if he even misses a game anymore. You see, I think Jesus had a lot of fans those days. Fans who cheered him on when, when things were going well, but walked away when things got a little difficult. These are the fans who sit safely in the stands cheering and are the first to complain when things don't go well. They know all about him, but they really don't know him. You see, the thing is, Jesus isn't really interested in fans. He's not really interested in admirers, even enthusiastic ones. Jesus is calling for followers who are willing to be transformed by living in a relationship with him. Followers who are willing to turn their lives to Jesus and rearrange their lives, their priorities around him. Followers willing to choose the life of Jesus and invest in the lives of others. And that's why we have to move from what he can do for me to, to make my life more interesting and more comfortable. We need to move from that to a life that's lived for and to him. In other words, and this is our first point this morning, we must move from general curiosity to personal faith. We must move from general curiosity to personal faith. And that's where the next group of guys comes in. They literally come crashing into the story. We read in verse 3, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. By digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. And it says that Jesus recognized their faith. Now it's easy to read God's word. It's easy to read the Bible and just kind of brush through all of this. But this morning, I want us to really see and feel and smell this story as it happens. We need to read the Bible not in black and white, but in color and, and imagine that the crowd has spilled out into Peter's home and it overflows into the street. 
Some guys hear that Jesus is in the house and they carry their friend to the house to to see Jesus and and to be healed. And as they approach the house, they're like, "Uh uh-oh, man, how are we going to get to Jesus? There's, There's people everywhere. But rather than giving up and going home, they get creative. You see, homes at that time had flat roofs, and, and they were made of like a kind of a plaster and mud and, and straw kind of thing. And there were stairs that led up to the roof on the outside of the house because people would often sit up there. It was kind of like their patio or their back porch. And they would sit up there to get the nice cool breeze, and, and even some would sleep up there because it was cooler up there than in the house. And so the, these four friends, they find the stairs, they go up to the roof, they, they listen to approximately where Jesus is speaking, and they literally unroof the roof until <laughs> they have a hole big enough to lower their friend down to Jesus. Imagine. <laughs> Imagine what this scene must have looked like. Imagine if someone were on the roof right now, <laughs> and we would hear the footsteps, and like, whoa, that's, that's a big squirrel, you know? And we'd hear the footsteps, and then we'd hear them as they're tearing the shingles off and tearing the tar paper and ripping through the, the plywood and, and plaster and dust and other things are starting to fall down, and our safety team's going nuts, like, what's, what's going on here? Who's breaking into the church through the roof? And then we start to see this little pinhole of light, and it grows bigger and bigger, and we hear them talking and shouting to each other, encouraging each other, and it's like, what is going on? And there's this light in the roof, and then all of a sudden it's dark because this man is being lowered from the roof right in front of Jesus. It's crazy. And as, he, as he's laid in front of Jesus, the religious leaders that are sitting before Jesus have to, have to kind of squeeze in a little bit and, and shake the, the dust and debris off their robes and, and kind of brush each other off. And at the same time, I imagine what I believe, Jesus looks up at those friends and then he looks in the face of that, <clears throat> of that paralytic man, the man who's paralyzed, and he smiles. You see, most of us get distracted when someone comes late or or leaves to go to the bathroom. (laughs) I mean, everyone, especially Peter and his family, it's their home, it's their roof. They're surprised, they're taken back by what's just happened. But I believe Jesus is just as laser-focused as always, ready to embrace this interruption and use it as an illustration of faith to use it as a demonstration of his authority over all things. So what does the text say? When Jesus saw the mess, no. When Jesus saw their intrusion, no. When Jesus saw their interruption to his teaching, no. Though through all of this, what does Jesus see? It says, when Jesus saw their faith, these men were different than most of the crowd that day. They were there in faith. And while the rest of the crowd was, was probably frustrated and agitated that you know, this was interrupting their show, we know this sure, this sure thing about these five guys. They believed that Jesus could heal. 
They went to some pretty extreme measures to get to Jesus. They, they had to believe that Jesus was the only way their paralyzed friend could be healed. They believed what Jesus could do. Certainly the paralytic had to believe. First of all, he would be embarrassed to be seen in public. In that culture, his condition was considered a judgment from God. See, people like this generally didn't want publicity. So this man really believed Jesus could heal him, and his four friends believed as well because it says Jesus saw their faith. But it's interesting that, that we see their faith is connected to their actions. James puts it this way, faith without works is dead. And so faith acts, faith overcomes, faith pursues, faith strives to its object. That's what we see in these, men's, in these men's actions. Their faith was demonstrated by their care, their concern, their love for their friend. Their faith was demonstrated by their grit and creativity that overcame the obstacles that were in their way. Their faith was demonstrated by their commitment and conviction to get their friend to Jesus. You see, their love for their friend and their faith in Jesus were the first reason their friend was about to experience delivery. You think about it. Isn't this how it is with God, with us? That God so loved the world, he made the ultimate sacrifice for us. He tore through what separated us from him and gave us his son. Who would die for our sin and give us new life. And I wonder what roofs we're willing to rip through in order to get people we care for to Jesus. Continue the, continue the pray for your loved ones. Continue the pray for the people around you. Continue the pray for your three. Continue to bring them to Jesus in prayer. Continue to live to make Jesus make sense to them. You see, these men were more than curious. Jesus saw in them a personal faith in him, which leads to his next action. We read in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, how does he respond? He said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now think about this. If you're reading this, this, this is odd. It's obvious they went to all this trouble, not for his sins to be forgiven, but so he could be healed. He wants to walk. He wants to run again. He even wants to stand on his own. He doesn't want to be carried around town by four guys the rest of his life. He wants to be healed. He wants his legs back. And so Jesus does something completely unexpected here. He forgives his sins. Reminds me just recently, my, my mom had super high blood pressure. And, and we're telling her, Mom, you need, to, you need to go to the doctor. You need to go to urgent care. And so she finally relented and, and went to urgent care. And, and her blood pressure was crazy high. And so she goes to urgent care, and they sent her home for, with medication for a sinus infection. <laughs> she went to her doctor the next day, and he's like, you don't have a sinus infection. You have high blood pressure. <laughs> it's like, what, what, what's going on? You see, in this case, they were treating my mom for the wrong ailment. <laughs> in the case of Jesus and the paralytic, Jesus saw a greater need. 
and took care of that first. Had Jesus immediately healed the man, that would have been a great thing. It was a good thing. But instead, Jesus chose to do the best thing. You see, we can learn a lot from Jesus here. Our second point is we must move from doing good to doing the most good. From doing good to doing the most good. The the phrase is taken from Salvation Army, whose theme is doing the most good. And when its founder, William Booth, started this religious humanitarian organization in 1865, his passion was to bring soup, soap, and salvation to the hungry, the dirty, and the lost of London. And so he took the hope of Jesus to the poverty-filled streets of London. And now, for over 150 years, this now global ministry has been the hands and feet of Jesus to countless people all over the world. Well, recently a pastor was speaking to a group of Salvation Army officers, and he used this theme to ask them a question. He said, are you just doing good, or are you truly doing the most good? And then he went on to say, if you're taking care of the needy, you're doing good. But if you're taking care of the needy and sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus, you are truly doing the most good. You see, Jesus was choosing not to just do good, but to do the most good. You see, the story takes us from the curious crowd to the paralytic with faith, to who Jesus is, the forgiving Savior. And up to, the, up to this point, no one's really said anything until Jesus speaks. And, and Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. The word son is literally the word for child. Child, your sins are forgiven. And I believe Jesus is claiming a special relationship with this paralyzed man. A relationship of love and care. And he forgives his sins. You see, Jesus saw a real kind of faith, a faith that saves, a faith that doesn't come from the experience of seeing others healed, but comes from a conviction of who Jesus really is. Jesus knew what he needed most. Yeah, he wanted healing. He wanted to be free of his paralysis, but far more than that, he needed forgiveness. He needs a restored relationship with his creator God. Healing would would meet his felt need. His greatest need was to be forgiven of his sin. Forgiveness is at the heart of our faith in Jesus, and it was the greater miracle that day. See, this man has now been dead for over 2,000 years. If he had died in his sins, he'd been separated from God for all eternity. Instead, he was given eternal life in the presence of his God, in the presence of his creator. And you see, we don't always live this way. We don't always see it this way. But actually, our greatest problems are not physical. They're spiritual. Forgiven, he received so much more than if he had merely been healed. You see, there's more to this life than this life. Our greatest needs are not physical ailments, but our fallen hearts. Without God's forgiveness, healing really doesn't even matter. And as I think about this, I wonder if it might, this, this truth might change the way we pray. 
I've led prayer meetings over the years in which 95% of the requests are for deliverance from aches and pains and ailments and problems. Does God care about those things? Yes, definitely, for sure. But I wonder if this accurately reflects God's heart for us. I wonder if those prayers accurately reflect God's passion, his best for us. Now, it's certainly okay to pray for these things, much like it's certainly okay to give a thirsty kid a, a cup of water or a hungry homeless person a meal. Those are good things. They meet a need. They practically show love and concern, but really, it's only the first step to the most good, the best good, the greatest good. We live to make Jesus make sense. Our greatest need is Jesus. See, we used to do, we used to do carnivals at, at, at the church I was at, and, and we, would, we would plan and prepare, and, and uh, we would invite the community out, and it was great. It was a lot of fun, and, and then people would come from the community. It showed that we cared for them. It showed that we loved, uh, you know, the kids in our community. But that wasn't the main point. The main point was not that we had fun and and showed that we cared as much as it was the conversations and the connections that we made with people who didn't know Jesus. And I was always amazed at the number of people that they, they would, we wouldn't see them for a year and then a crisis would hit their life and they would be like, wow, who do we go to? Oh, maybe we go to that church down the street that we remember we went to that carnival about, you know, 9, 12, 15 months ago. And they would come into the church and we got to share Jesus with them. We got to share hope with them. We got to make those connections. It, it opened up opportunities to take them to Jesus. Here Jesus offers this paralyzed man something only he could give, life, new life, eternal life, and relationship with God. He gave him hope and purpose. Jesus adopted this man into his family. And Jesus was the only one who had the authority to do this. The, the writer of Hebrews tells us, but because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able... He is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. He is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. You see, only Jesus could do these things. Only Jesus could do this. And so after Jesus makes this statement, the focus shifts from the forgiven man on the cot to the crowd of religious leaders watching as all of this unfolds before their eyes. And we read in verse 6, now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? You see, these teachers in the law were there to observe Jesus. They, they have their suspicions about him. They, they want to make sure that he toes the line. They were the legal experts, deeply religious, highly educated, very sincere, very moral, very upright. 
They saw themselves as the guardians of God's law. And after the statement about forgiving sins, we read what they're thinking. Who's this guy think he is? He's a blasphemer. You can almost see them like looking at each other with concerned looks. Did you just hear what I heard? Yeah, I heard it. It's like, ooh. <laughs> and it says Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Their reasoning was clear. Number one, only God can forgive sin. Number two, this man, Jesus, is claiming to do what only God can do. Obviously, this man is a blasphemer. It's an open and shut case. You see, blasphemy was one of the most serious sins a Jew could commit. It was the un unmistakable and overt abuse of God's name. And in Jesus' time, it was a capital offense. These teachers of the law understood exactly what Jesus was saying. It's true that only God can forgive sin. It's also true that Jesus had just forgiven this man of his sin. And when they heard that, they said to themselves, who does he think he is, God? And that's the whole point. Who is this man? He's either a blasphemer or he's God. We either kill him or we must worship him. Which will it be? And these religious leaders, they're brilliant, analytical, informed, well-read, but they have no category big enough for Jesus. A healer? Well, yeah, we, we've seen him heal some people. A teacher? Yeah, he, wow, he really knows his Bible. A wise man? Yes, certainly. The Son of God from heaven? No way. They have no room for that idea, but Jesus was bigger than the box that they tried to put him in. You see, we can't afford to make the same mistake. That's why, thirdly, we must move from looking at Jesus as a good man to living for Jesus as our great Lord. The most unfortunate part about this story is that these religious leaders, they didn't have to make this mistake. They had all the tools to come to the right conclusion. They had, they had forgot more about the Bible than most people would ever know. They were religious to a fault. They spent their days arguing about the Bible. They knew all the Old Testament predictions about a Savior who, the, who would come, a, a, the Messiah, the Deliverer. They knew what signs to look for. And yet with all of that going for them, they still came to this wrong conclusion. And so the story isn't finished. One miracle has already taken place. Another is about to happen. Jesus knew what they were thinking. He asked and he asked them a simple question. Which is easier? To say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Jesus answers a question with a question, a, a technique these Jewish lawyers would appreciate. And he asks, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or, or get up and walk? Well, the truth is, you can say either one pretty easily, but both are impossible for any of us to do. You can say your sins are forgiven, and 
You know, no one's going to contradict you because forgiveness isn't something you can observe. You can say it all you want and, and no one will know whether you really did it or not. On the other hand, there's an easier way to check if someone says get up and walk. It can't be faked. <laughs> he either gets up or he doesn't. And so Jesus proposes a test. He's offering the Pharisees undeniable proof of who he really is. What's impossible for man is possible only for God. One could say one of these statements could certainly say both statements. And that was Jesus' point. Jesus saying, I want you to know that I have power over the stuff that you can't see. That I have power over the internal. I have power over the forgiveness of sin. So what I'm about to do is to show you that I have authority over the external, the physical world, the, the things that you can see. And so when I heal this man and you see the miracle in the natural realm, understand I also have authority over the supernatural realm, over the spiritual realm, the forgiveness of sin. And so Jesus tells him, get up, pick up your mat and go. What happens? Verse 12, he, the paralytic. The paralytic, the paralyzed man who, who had to be carried and, and dropped through a roof, the man whose nerves no longer fire, signaling his muscles to function, the man with no strength in his muscles, it says he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. Healing itself is instantaneous, complete, and public. They saw the before and after before their very eyes. He picks up his bed, picks his way through the stunned crowd, and walks home. And the point is clear. Jesus is not just a good man. He's not just a great teacher. But both healing and forgiveness flow from the word of Jesus. He has authority over the physical and the spiritual. Why? Because he is God. The story finishes this way. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. I bet they hadn't. The word amazed means something like to, to blow the mind. Their minds were blown. The people who had come to hear Jesus, who were curious about him, leave utterly, totally, absolutely flabbergasted. They're, they're praising God and are scared to death at the same time. They'd never seen anything like this. You see, the sermon that day was a story that unfolded in the matter of minutes it took those men to dig through the roof to lower their paralytic friend to Jesus, to have Jesus forgive their sins and then heal him to prove he had authority to do both. Jesus was revealing his authority over all things, things on earth, things on heaven, things in our hearts. And he did it by addressing this paralytic man's most pressing need. Forgiveness and a relationship with God. And that's the reality today as well. Because here's the truth. Jesus wants to address your most pressing need. He wants to address that. 
You see, this is where some of us get caught up with Jesus. We're paralyzed by life and circumstances, and then someone drags us to church and drags us to Jesus, and so we come to him for advice. Yeah, there's, there's good advice in there. We come to him for tips for a better life. We come to him because we think our most pressing need is comfort or health or wealth or, or even happiness. But Jesus wants to address my most pressing need because he's the only one who has the authority to do something about it. And he meets us where we most need it. Because he did what none of us could do for ourselves in becoming the perfect sacrifice for our sin so that we might experience forgiveness and new, new life in him. He wants us to experience the most good by saying yes to him. By following him, by arranging our lives around him, and then extending what we've experienced in Jesus to others by living to make Jesus make sense and offering love and grace and forgiveness as we found in him. You see, the most distinctive benefit Christianity has to offer this world is, is not a certain kind of morality or an ethical approach to life. It's not generosity or social responsibility, though we're certainly to be marked by these things. These are things that are, are evidence of the greatest thing. Because there's other religions that offer ethics and morality and social responsibility and family values and, and measures of love and peace. But none of these address our greatest need. No, the most distinctive benefit that Christianity has to offer the world is Jesus. Paul tells us that in Jesus, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. How rich is that? <laughs> the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. You see, our greatest need is Jesus and the forgiveness and life he alone has the authority and the ability to give. You see, when a life is truly changed by Jesus, it, it impacts my attitudes. It impacts what I do and what I say. It, it begins to impact my relationships, and, and pretty soon my, it tr transforms my marriage. And when a marriage is transformed, it roots a family. And when our neighborhoods are filled with families rooted in Jesus, they transform their communities. If you want to see change, if you want to see more love and more peace, more kindness, more justice, it starts with Jesus. Jesus meets our greatest need and prioritizes the most good. He, he doesn't want fans. He wants followers. Have you said yes to Jesus? Yes, Jesus, I, I accept your forgiveness. Yes, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to arrange my life around you and what you prioritize and what you're passionate about. Yes, I want to point others to you. Will you say yes to Jesus? Maybe you're already following Jesus. Like the paralytic's friends, what, what are you doing to bring others to Jesus? What lengths are you going to in order to bring them to Jesus? Are you praying diligently for people around you? That they would realize their need and Jesus would make sense to them? 
How are you building into others' lives? Are you living in a way that shares what you've experienced in Jesus? That you forgive because you know that you've been forgiven so much that it cost Jesus his life. Are you able to forgive that way? Are you able to love that way? Just as he loved us and gave himself up for us, are we able to serve in that way and give ourselves in that way in the way that Jesus gave himself for us? You see, it's my prayer that we might know the new life that we have in Jesus, forgiven as only God can forgive, and experience the most good as only Jesus can give. Let's pray together.